But how many gods are there in Christianity? I think the answer is more than we think. So I'm going to introduce you to a few of them at the beginning of our sermon here. The first one is the God of moral superiority. This God's sole reason for existing is to give his followers the opportunity to prove to the world why they are better than everybody else. The God of moral superiority. Here's another God within Christianity today. It's the God of endless rules. This is the God who's spent thousands of years legislating human morality arguably unsuccessfully until finally today people have just stopped listening to him. We've also got the God of hellfire and damnation. So this is a God who is so hateful and brutal and judgmental that it's pretty clear he comes from an ancient tradition and it's arguable whether he really has anything to offer our modern world at all. You like these gods so far? I don't think they sound super appealing, but don't worry, there's more. There's also a God of unconditional support. So get this, this God just so happens to support all the exact same things that you support. He just so happens to view the whole world exactly how you view it. And this God gets just as upset as you do as all the knuckleheads, at all the knuckleheads out there who don't, don't agree with you. And he'll throw his support behind anything you want him to. He'll advocate for anything that you want him to. This God does not exist to criticize you and challenge you. He just exists to validate whatever you want validated. God of unconditional support. There's also a God of generic inclusion. This God doesn't care what religion you follow. He doesn't actually care if you have a religion at all. This God mostly just cares that we're nice to each other, we try to be good people, and if we do that, this God is going to make sure that we all make it to a better place someday. Finally, there is the God of optional engagement. And here is his deal. This God is kind of just chilling out in the spiritual realm, and he's there for anybody that wants to make a spiritual connection. And so if you're like a spiritual person and you want to have a spiritual thing in your life, he would love to engage with you. But if you don't feel like that's going to be valuable for you personally, it's not a big deal. No pressure. The God of optional engagement is, is pretty chill. So how many gods are there in Christianity? Well, there's more than we think. I mean, we've only scratched the surface. I think we could probably go on and on, like this would be a good Bible study activity where you draw up what are some of the gods that you observe to be believed in Christianity. Um, but this is where the rubber now meets the road. So I'm guessing that many of you here today might have heard some of the things about these younger generations, uh, those pesky millennials, those, those coddled Gen Zers, are different than the older generations, but the big difference in younger generations today that everybody's noticing is they just don't go to church anymore, right? People don't go to church like they used to. My question is, when you think about the buffet of gods that are available in American Christianity today, why should people go to church anymore? Because by this point, God has been twisted and morphed and used in so many different ways that God is really just another name for almost anything that you want to believe and do. But there's one problem, of course. Like, we've talked about all these gods. Gods, we could talk about more of them. But none of these gods that we have described is, is the God of the Bible. 
right? The God of wisdom and mercy and compassion and power. The God of both the law and the gospel. And the God who does such immeasurably great things for his people that he makes every other God look weak and pale in comparison. So for this morning, our task in our sermon today is we want to get back in touch with that true God of the Bible and appreciate what he actually brings to our lives. And to do that, we'll go back to 1000 BC and we'll hear from a man named King David in Psalm 34. Here's what David says about his God. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So as we're hearing King David's words, we're thinking, man, this is specific. This is kind of intense. It almost sounds like there must be a backstory here. And of course there is, as there is for many of David's psalms. And in this case, we know what the backstory was. It involves one of the low points of King David's life. Uh, Maybe you remember that before there was a King David, there was a King Saul, right? So King Saul was the first king of Israel, and he ended up being very evil and very wicked and very corrupt, so much so that God rejected him as king and sent his prophet to anoint this young man named David. So evil King Saul then devoted the next few months and years to hunting down David and trying to kill him. And David was always on the run from Saul. He finally ran all the way to enemy territory to where the Philistines lived. And there, David tried to hide out among the Philistines, hoping he wouldn't be recognized. But he was recognized. And he was caught. And they brought him before the enemy king, exposed as, you know, this is one of the Israelites' premier generals, and now we've got him here. And David fully expected that this was the day that he was going to lose his life in enemy territory, helpless before the king. But he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, and God found a very crazy, very unexpected way to deliver him, which we don't even have time to talk about this morning. But trust me, it was amazing. Story for a different time. But after God brought David out of this terrifying life-and-death situation, now David writes this psalm, and he looks back at his interactions with God through this whole experience. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And this was not a one-time isolated event in David's life. As David writes this psalm, he's a pretty young man, but he thinks back to his life already, and again and again he can see this pattern of God saving him and delivering him in times of trouble. Maybe you remember some of David's childhood and things he went through in his younger years. He was a shepherd guarding the sheep, and as a little kid, his only weapon was a slingshot, and there were times when both lions and bears came and attacked his sheep, and he had to fight them off hand-to-hand with his slingshot, and God protected him. And he survived. It's crazy what they made kids do 3,000 years ago. Um, Then as a teenager, not even strong enough to wear adult armor, he tried to put it on. It was too big. He had to take it back off. David faced off against this giant Philistine soldier named Goliath with nothing but his sling. And once again, God protected him in this terrifying, unlikely victory. 
that God gave to David. And then much more recently, approaching the time of the psalm that we're studying, um, right before David had fled from Israel, there was a day when King Saul threw a spear at him from point-blank range in the middle of a crowded banquet hall, and somehow David dodged it and ran out the door and escaped and wasn't even harmed. Once again, God protected him. So David is a young man, but he has had a ton of near-death experiences and terrifying times, and God has gotten him through all of it. Even before he's the king, officially, David can recognize God's protection and deliverance as a consistent pattern throughout his life. But then, when David got older and became king, he learned from experience that God's protection and deliverance applies to even bigger things. It applies to the spiritual things as well. And David knew that because years after this psalm was written, David lost his way. He lost his way. David was now the king. He was living in the palace. He could have anything that he wanted. And David decided that what he wanted was his neighbor's wife. And so this led David to adultery and then to murder. And then David started treating the Lord like one of those modern-day gods that we've talked about. He started treating the Lord maybe like the optional God who you can engage with only if you feel like it. So after murdering his neighbor and stealing his wife, David hid this, lied about it, covered it up from everybody else, and basically told God to mind his own business. But God refused to mind his own business. Uh, God did two things for David. First, he caused David's conscience to nag at him and nag at him until finally David was so worn down, he said his strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He's becoming exhausted by his guilt. And then God sent a prophet to David. And the prophet told David a made-up story about an incredibly cruel rich man somewhere in the kingdom who had, even though he had many sheep of his own, he took his neighbor's little pet lamb and slaughtered it and ate it. And King David got pulled into this story and said, where is this man and where does he live in my kingdom? Because somebody that is this cruel deserves to die. And then the prophet flipped it and said, well, I've been talking about you. You're the man. Look what you did to your neighbor. Look what you did to your neighbor's wife. What in the world have you done? And then, because God wouldn't leave him alone, King David finally cried. And he cried tears of repentance over what he had done to his neighbor. And he cried tears of shame over what he had done to destroy his relationship with God. But then, God's prophet spoke the most beautiful words that a fallen king could ever hear. He said to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. King David, you are forgiven. And David, as he did, wrote another psalm to talk about this experience. And he's describing, you know, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer, the weight of guilt crushing down on him. And David says, then I acknowledged my sin to God. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I'm going to confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of all my sin. God refused to leave David alone. God refused to let him live out his life in loneliness and guilt. 
God did whatever he had to do to bring David into repentance and to bring David back into his family. Meanwhile, God didn't leave David's sin unpunished. God didn't say murder and adultery is no big deal. Someone eventually died for this sin. It wasn't David. It was Jesus. A thousand years later, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world through David's own family, and he willingly offered himself up on that cross as an atoning sacrifice, not just for David's sins, but for all the sins of the entire world. So David was blessed to have a God who delivered him from his physical problems, the lion and the bear and the spears of King Saul, but he was truly blessed to have a God who saved him from his spiritual problems. And King David knew it. Um, because at the end of the day, I think here would be the summary of Psalm 34, maybe the clearest and best verse. This is what is so special about David's God and our God. It's the fact that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. What would you write if you're a, a poet like King David, if you're writing a psalm that's going to summarize what God means to you and what God has done for your life, what would you talk about? Would you talk about a time that God physically rescued you from physical danger? Maybe you were a victim of a crime or you had an accident or a health scare or maybe there was something where you didn't know if you would physically survive but God got you through it. What would you write? Would it be maybe an emotional low point in your life? A time where you were feeling crushed by fear, anxiety, depression, the loss of a loved one? A time in your life where you didn't know if you were going to be able to emotionally survive, but God got you through it? What would you write? Maybe, maybe you'd talk about a spiritual low point. A time when you were crushed by the sins of the past so much that you felt like you would never escape them and those things you did in the past are always going to define you. Or maybe it was a time where you felt despair over the temptations of the present, like you're just never going to be able to live the kind of life that you know you should live and God wants you to live and you try and you just keep failing, you're so frustrated. Maybe it's one of those low points when suddenly God comes through to you in his word and it's like the sun breaking through the clouds, and you remember, Jesus forgave me for all of this. My sins are gone as far as God is concerned. God says, through your faith in Jesus, your sins are as far away from you as the east is from the west. It is like your sins have been buried in the depths of the sea. You are forgiven, and God doesn't see those sins anymore, and you do get to be a part of God's family forever. What would you write? I mean, all of our stories are different, but they all contain the same vital element. It is a God who saves us from our troubles, who delivers us from our fears. It is a God who holds on to us with all of his might, and he just will not let us go. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. A God who would do all of that for each and every one of us. That's not just a God worth knowing. That is a God worth sharing with as many people as we possibly can. And that's what King David thought. It's interesting as you read Psalm 34, you know, we've shared all of the parts about what God means to him, but intermingled the whole way through is how desperately he wants more people to see this, who God really is, what God is really about. He says things like, as he's glorifying God, glorify the Lord with me. Let's, let's exalt his name together. Taste and see that the Lord is good and that blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. King David is saying, just try it, just try him, and God is not going to let you down. And God express it, or David expresses that thought very clearly in another psalm where he says this sentence, you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. You've never forsaken those who seek you. A God who is 100% consistent and reliable, a God who never lets his people down. That's a God worth knowing. And that's a God worth sharing. So, how many gods are there in Christianity? I mean, there's a lot of gods with the lowercase g, but there's only one capital G God. There's only one God of the Bible who saves us from our troubles, delivers us from our fears, holds on to us with all of his might, and never lets us go. In fact, in a world full of these weak, shallow gods who don't really offer real solutions to our biggest problems, the God of the Bible is refreshing. So I pray that God would give us the wisdom to realize that. And we think so much about how countercultural it is to be a Christian and maybe people don't want to think about God, but may God give us the strength to to think like uh, Paul did in our second reading and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of my God as, this is, as though this is going to be something that, that people won't like. It's not going to help them. But my God is the refreshing thing that everybody inwardly is longing to know. May God give us the wisdom to realize how special he is. And then may God give us the confidence to share the only God that is worth knowing with as many people as we possibly can. God grant that to each one of us for Jesus' sake. Amen.